The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. I have like no makeup except red lipstick. Uh, I'm in my home instead of my normal radio studio. And this is, I'm breaking my virginity in talk radio today because you can watch me on television. You can hear me on radio and podcast and online. But today you get to see me and hear me. I know I'm slow to the game. I'm new at this, but hey, I'm with you, right? I'm Leslie Marshall. How are you doing? Uh, We're going to do for people that have never tuned into the program before, give you a little bit of a a glimmer and a glimpse into what we do here at the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, We start the program off with something I'll tell you about in a moment, and we're going to have a great guest that you're going to learn from. We try to have guests on, especially during this time of COVID-19, that help to educate us with everything uh, surrounding COVID-19. And as you know, it's not always medical. Sometimes it could be, uh, you know, about personal uh, health outside of COVID-19, like, you know, mental health issues. Or, like today, financial and economical issues, because obviously, as you heard from the president earlier, that's a concern. Everybody wants to get back to work. There's a lot of concern where money is concerned. We're going to talk to a great guest about that in just a bit. Uh, So you hang tight. But we start this show off with a little thing we like to call ripped. Now, on Saturday, March 21st, while Donald Trump was tweeting about the Chinese virus and circulating praise for the great job we've done, Eric Rees received a phone call from another Silicon Valley CEO, and that guy was his friend Jeff Lawson from the firm Twilio. And what he told him was that to deal with the rapidly escalating coronavirus crisis, the White House was recruiting tech executives to help. Rees, who's the founder and CEO of a new company, the long-term stock exchange, and author of a best-selling book, The Lean Startup, which made him a well-known TV figure, at least in the Valley, uh, in Silicon Valley. It was an obvious choice for someone looking to stand up in a high-tech solution to this disaster and to do it quickly. Now, he had long preached the virtues of going to market as fast as possible with what he called MVP, minimum viable product, not most valuable player. America was watching and shocked as doctors and nurses pleaded, my husband included, for protective gear and medical equipment such as ventilators. Reese was asked to help start a website that would match hospitals and suppliers. And sure, Reese said he could have something up and running and fast. What followed over the weeks, two weeks that followed after that, was an inside glimpse of the dysfunction, the dysfunction that came out of this administration, the dysfunction that came out of Washington and out of our federal government in the midst of this pandemic. It was a crash course in the breakdown that has led to nurses In one of the wealthiest nations in the world, we are, America, they're wearing garbage bags. And by the way, some of those nurses that we saw online in those photos wearing garbage bags, today it was announced 
a handful of those nurses have tested positive for COVID-19. Now, they were wearing garbage bags, why? To protect themselves from this virus. The president downplayed, downplayed the outbreak of this virus. Until when? It was too late to prepare for its consequences. Now, the first phone conversation demonstrated how awful things had become and how awry things had gone. He reached out to the White House contact when he mentioned the Trump administration's coronavirus task force that was asking for Silicon Valley's help. The response was, which one? There's more than one task force. Because if you remember, Trump enlisted his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to help with the pandemic response. Guys, no experience in that whatsoever. And a very murky effort at best uh, that was not public at the time. Um, already seen as working at cross purposes with the official task force, the real medical people, the scientists. Uh, that one is overseen by the vice president, Mike Pence. And what they also learned is that the website that was used by the government to create, um, it, it, it took three hours on the phone to realize, he said, Reese, who is a high tech guru, the world didn't need another website because they didn't need another website problem to solve. We saw what happened at the launch of Obamacare. Similarly, we saw it with this uh, website, governmental website launch during this pandemic. Now, numerous relief groups are already in place. Some of them will solicitate uh, donations for urgently needed personal protective equipment, PPE. Uh, that's what uh, the uh, abbreviation is. Um, the rest of the country soon learned about it through the media, which many people blame for the virus, which is not the case. Uh, there are people that organize sewing machine brigades to make masks. Teams of graduate students are creating designs for 3D printed ventilators. And what did Silicon Valley and Reese at the helm of this think they could do and bring a bit of order to this chaos? What they wanted to do was organize a small army of relief groups and volunteers into an effective partner for the federal government for when it actually would take charge. And what he said is, I thought eventually somebody would lead. He spent a lot of time pulling together a new umbrella organization, the PPE Coalition. And as promised, they had their website up and running very quickly, days within the idea and even a hotline to field requests. So for the next two weeks, requests flooded in and eventually there were 31 groups that joined the coalition. The website provided links to organizations with names that tell the true story and the sad story of this crisis from Operation We Can Sew It uh, to get them PPE. Now, the sense of urgency was Armageddon was coming in three weeks. That's what he remembers being told, okay? There was a rush to help people before the beginning of this month, before April, because deaths were predicted to peak in New York City and hospitals throughout the country, looking at uh, places not just like New York City, but New Orleans in the great state of Louisiana. There was also a sense of disbelief, disbelief that some of these hotspots like New York, like Vegas, uh, like New Orleans, and like the rest of the country, would they truly be overwhelmed? Would there truly be a shortage of beds? One of the volunteers kept saying, there is no way we should be doing this alone. Now, there's a woman named Jennifer Palka. She founded the tech group Code for America and served as deputy chief technology officer in the Obama White House. She's now helping her organization with a coronavirus relief group, uh, U.S. Digital Response, and they've advised this PPE coalition. She said, quote, in our community, we have sweatshirts and T-shirts and stickers that say no one is coming. It's up to us. Sadly, quite true, especially for medical. My husband is an orthopedic surgeon on the second, the backup of the front line. OK, he's in the hospital or the office seeing and touching people and patients every day. Does he have gloves? Yeah. 
just got his N95 mask this week. I kid you not, this week. It's really hard when that T-shirt and that slogan is also really true because it's terrifying, right? I mean, for days, uh, FEMA was, we were told FEMA would step in. And a lot of us were saying, why isn't FEMA stepping in? When is FEMA going to step in? When are they going to take charge of doing what they do and doing what they do best, which is distributing critical supplies and directing them to where they were most needed? But, but at the beginning, that just didn't happen. I mean, it just didn't happen. And um, then eventually at the White House briefing last week, um, I, I think a lot of people feel it'll go down as one of the most callous performances, if you remember, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, said publicly what he, in effect, had told Silicon Valley privately in a private phone call with the business leaders and government officials that the states were responsible and the U.S. national stockpile was, quote, ours, meaning the federal government, not theirs. Now, if we're all in this together, we can't just look at federal versus state. We got to look at, let's put everything in a pot, who needs it most, and distribute it there, which, by the way, is kind of socialistic, which probably makes the administration uncomfortable. For two weeks, there were volunteers, Reese at the helm, and the rest of Silicon Valley that believed it was only a matter of time until the federal government would come to the rescue. They planned to serve as more like a bridge for the desperate states and cities that started calling their hotline as soon as it was up and running, by the way. And eventually the federal government, they would pass off to it, hand off to it, and they would take care of it. Because isn't that what the federal government is supposed to do, America? They're supposed to not just care about our safety uh, with military, but hello, safety from this virus. Um, and basically, uh, venture capitalists and others at the PPP uh, coalition thought that they and saw themselves as a backstop. Um, that they were plan C, perhaps even plan D. But what they didn't foresee was that the federal government might never come to the rescue. They did not realize that this was a government failure by design, not a problem to be fixed by a policy choice by President Trump that either would not or could not be undone. Nobody could believe it. The number one problem to the whole situation was there are facts that are known that are inconceivable, but are we just in denial? Independent reporting has corroborated what Silicon Valley and other volunteers saw for themselves, a fragmented procurement system now descending into chaos. Let's rip another. Sadly, many of you have seen online new drone video that shows a giant trench being dug at New York City's public cemetery on Hart Island. This is to help handle an influx of unclaimed bodies due to the coronavirus pandemic. And as the death toll mounts in New York, the city's public cemetery has started receiving about the same amount of bodies per day that it used to bury each week. There are normally 25 bodies approximately buried a week at the uh, on the interred um, of the island, mostly for people whose families can't afford a funeral or families who and bodies who go unclaimed by any relatives. But recently, burial operations have increased from one day a week to five days a week, about 24 burials a day, according to the Department of Corrections spokesman Jason Kirsten. And before burial, the dead are wrapped in body bags placed inside pine, uh, inside pine caskets. Uh, the deceased name is scrawled in large letters on each casket, and that helps should they have to disinter a body later. They are buried in long, narrow trenches excavated by digging machines. The medical examiner's office will only keep the bodies for 14 days before they're sent to be buried at the Potter's Field uh, on Hart Island in the Bronx. Now, what we've seen, many of us, are aerial images 
uh, that were taken yesterday by the Associated Press. And on those images, we saw the image capture workers digging the graves on the island. About 40 caskets lined up for burial on the island yesterday, two fresh trenches that have been dug in recent days. Um, I think most of us would agree it's surreal uh, for we as Americans. It's surreal uh, in 2020. It's just surreal to see photos like this, trenches and coffins and the numbers. The island may also be used for temporary interments should death surge past the city's morgue capacity. The Office of the Chief Medical Examiner can store about 800 to 900 bodies, but 4,000 can be stored in refrigerated trucks dispatched to city hospitals. The plan for temporary burials at heart, it was finalized back in 2008, by the way, part of the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner's plan for pandemic influenza outbreaks, which we're certainly in the midst of, folks. Currently, New York City's daily death rate, far below the maximum scenario the plan was designed to handle. And now, as you know, New York has the highest death rate in surpassed countries in the world. That's what's ripped from the headlines. I'm Leslie Marshall. Coming up, we have a great guest that will be joining us. Tune in. He is an expert in finance and economics, which I certainly am not. I'll ask questions. I'm going to learn. Stick with me through this commercial break. I hope you'll learn as well here on The Only True Democracy and Talk, The Leslie Marshall Show. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. And uh, joining us back on the program, we've had him on a number of times on the show. He knows his stuff. I learn from him all the time. He is Dr. Robert Shapiro. He is chairman of Sonicon, an economic advisory firm, a senior fellow of the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, an internationally known economist. He has advised, among others, President Bill Clinton, Vice President Al Gore Jr., British Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and then U.S. Senators Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. He was also Under Secretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. He's actually going to talk to us about the case that he makes for universal mandatory COVID-19 testing. Um, he, uh, I, I think, like you said, Mark, this just came down the pike by Robert J. Shapiro and was just posted like less than 10 minutes ago. So you're, you're getting this truly fresh, hot off the press. Yes. Uh, and we're going to be we're going to be talking to him about it. And his article begins, the Trump administration has failed miserably to test and track the initial spread of COVID-19 infections as South Korea did. And I think we all would agree South Korea is definitely someone and a nation we can look to, to what they did right, as opposed to looking at Italy, what they've done wrong. Obviously, you don't want to copy or emulate uh, a nation that's done it wrong. uh, And I think South Korea did it right. And uh, we in the United States have failed to do what South Korea did. Uh, they tested and they tracked the initial spread of COVID-19 infections. So much so that if you left your house, the South Korean government knew. That would be very uncomfortable for Americans. But in light of this pandemic, we might have wanted to be more like South Korea. But what is the failure done? Robert writes, its failure has brought terrible suffering to thousands of Americans and enormous economic costs. Now, he knows the money. He knows the money. And uh, he talks about why dramatic measures are necessary to establish a nationwide system system 
but universal testing and tracking. And by the way, my husband, who's a, a physician and all of the medical community that he speaks with uh, agree with this, especially if this virus comes back. And I say if, because it can come back. Viruses are seasonal. SARS never came back, by the way. Open COVID-19 is like SARS. But if it does, you got to be ready. Speaking of, we're ready for a quick break. We'll come back and hopefully the doctor will be joining us. I'm And we're back with Leslie Marshall. He is Dr. Robert Shapiro, chairman of Sonicon, an economic advisory firm and a senior fellow of the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Internationally known economist, he has advised, among others, President Bill Clinton, Vice President Al Gore Jr., British Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and then U.S. Senators Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. He was under Secretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. Uh, he wrote the uh, piece, The Case for Universal Mandatory COVID-19 Testing. And I, I spoke to you uh, before the break in his article, how he talks about the failure, miserable failure of the Trump administration to test and track the initial spread of the COVID-19 infections. South Korea did that. Uh, he goes on to talk about how this failure has brought terrible suffering to thousands of Americans. We know that physically. Uh, but the enormous economic costs that came along with it as well. Um, he is proposing, like I said, my husband and other medical professionals I've interviewed on this program and I've spoken to uh, in, in personal life, um, that uh, dramatic measures are necessary to establish a nationwide system for both universal testing and universal tracking. And he says, otherwise, we will continue to live in a state of dangerous uncertainty. Whoa. Hi, Dr. Shapiro. Glad to have you with yes. us. Yes. Okay. Um, it's uh, I'm, a pleasure to be here. Uh, good, Dr. Shapiro. Thank you. Uh, I'm talking about your piece, uh, The Case for Universal Mandatory COVID-19 Testing. You speak of the failures, the miserable failures of the Trump administration to test and track the initial spread of COVID-19 infections, as South Korea did. You talk about the failure that brought terrible suffering to thousands of Americans. You talk about the enormous economic cost and you go on to speak and, and certainly are a champion uh, of the idea that dramatic measures are necessary. And those are two things. One, nationwide universal testing and nationwide universal tracking. Can you speak to why these would, in, in your professional opinion, have such an enormous impact on our economy, uh, which we failed to do the first time around because they say this virus very likely will come around again uh, in the fall? Well, the... The fact is, at some point, whether it's in two months or in six months or even longer, um, new infections will fall dramatically on a sustained basis. Um, and hopefully, if it's in the longer period, we will develop treatments for people. But the fact is, that uh, this will happen at some point, and when that does, we need a safe pathway back. Um, and that is be because at any point, um, there will be some people actively infected. In order to make it safer for, for a return to normal life, um, everyone needs to be tested. Those who the test show have had the infection and recovered and are now immune, they can certainly return to work and community life. In principle, so can everyone who has not been infected. So long as those who are actively infected um, are, are isolated from everyone else. 
that's why you need the testing. The testing is really to identify uh, those who are actively infected so that they can be isolated from everyone else and their contacts tracked. If we had done this in the beginning, we would have avoided most of this crisis as South Korea did. We didn't. But the fact is we're still going to have to do this um, because the only way to get totally rid of this infection and protect what will be at least half the country who have not been infected would be a vaccine, and that's still probably at least a year off. Uh, Dr. Shapiro, today, Dr. Fauci uh, uh, said that the uh, Trump administration was discussing coronavirus immunity certificates for Americans, which would go on the heels of what you're talking about and proposing. Would you be in favor yes. of that? Would you be in favor uh, of that? No, absolutely. Um, and But immunity certificates, and I think you know you could put a stamp on people's real ID cards or their driver's license or a separate digital or paper certificate. Germany is um, experimenting with this, and I call for it in my new piece in Washington Monthly. And the reason is to prove that you are not actively infected and, uh, and consequently can return to work and return to community life Again, when the rate of new infections has fallen dramatically and on a sustained basis. And, you know, we wouldn't have to do this everywhere at once. This could be done in a kind of serial fashion from place to place because we know that infections are falling in some places way before others. And that's because some places adopted social distancing and social isolation and close down their businesses uh, way before um, other cities and states did. Now, I want to play devil's advocate for a minute, because when I hear about, you know, certificates or even something on the driver's license, I get it. And part of me is totally on board with that. But then I get worried about people that don't have that, uh, that, uh, you know, no longer are immune, that are not immune that don't have that certification of immunity, does it then become like a scarlet letter for people that aren't immune? Because there's two categories there, people that well, are, infe- are infected and people that have never gotten the, gotten the virus. I mean, we won't as a, as a society 100% ever be infected right. by this. I would actually think, the way to think of it, I think, is not as immunity certificates, but certificates of not being infected. And so that would cover both those who have been infected and are now immune and those who are not infected. Again, this works so long as the universal mandatory tests have identified those who are actively infected and we've tracked their contacts. And so long as they are isolated on um, everyone else can return to work and community life with some safety. It's, it won't be 100%. Uh, nothing is 100%. Uh, but there is some encouraging news. number of new rapid tests, they are there. We are in development right now close to approval for pinprick tests mm-hmm. so that 
so that the test could be, the results could be established within a couple minutes just by a drop of blood. And um, that's, that's the way we would need universal testing. So when this, when this happens, whether it's a pinprick test or any other kind of test, and people are tested for the virus and the testing shows that someone is not infectious, then you say that person uh, could end their practice of social isolation, of social distancing, so that everyone found to be uh, uninfected um, or immune after being infected uh, receives that certificate authorizing them to return to work and congregate with others um, and then what do we what do we do with the the other people? I mean, because there you know people just shelter continue to shelter in place who haven't been affected or who are infected but you know don't need hospitalizations. How would that break down? Because hey, look, I know companies out there would say we would rather have uh, like restaurants. Let's use a restaurant example. We would rather have three tables full than none and 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 a couple of servers back to work. And and what a relief for people to know if they go out to the store that the people they're walking amongst. Uh, like them um, are are healthy, uh, but do you actually think this is possible with the, the size? And you know, aren't there some aren't there some Pandora's boxes that could be opened uh, in association with this? You know, I, I'm th- you know I'm thinking back in the day historically, Dr. Shapiro to like leper colonies. You know what I mean? Uh, right. to, you know, us and them, and that makes me you know a bit scared. Maybe it sounds too Hollywood. Well, there, well, there, there, there are a couple differences. Um, one is we're already living inside Pandora's box okay. today. All right. The second is that the difference between a leper colony and isolating people in wards and facilities while they are actively infected, and that would be whether or not they're symptomatic or not, um, that's a temporary measure. You know, leper colonies were established when there was no cure for, for the disease and people had to live their lives in it. Here, we're talking about a period until people recover. Um, and we would want, everyone would want anyone who is actively infected in, with this virus to not infect others. The only way we can do that is through universal testing and then isolating those who are actively infected. And I think most people who are actively infected would want to be isolated in order to protect the society. Yeah, yeah, and if nothing else, just, you know, their family members. Doctor, hang on. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Dr. Robert Shapiro is our guest. As I said, he was Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. Follow him on Twitter at Rob Shapiro, capital R-O-B, capital S-H-A-P-I-R-O. And the website for his company is sonicon.com capital S-O-N-E-C-O-N.com. I'm Leslie Marshall. Follow me on Twitter at Leslie Marshall. Instagram at Leslie Marshall Talker. Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Leslie Marshall Show. And on LinkedIn at Leslie Marshall. We'll be back with you with our guest, Dr. Shapiro, and more right after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. We are 
are back. Dr. Robert Shapiro, chairman of Sonicon Economic Advisory Firm, also a senior fellow at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, internationally known as an economist who has advised President Bill Clinton, Vice President Al Gore Jr., British Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and when they were senators, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. He was Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. We're talking about a great piece that he wrote today entitled The Case for Universal Mandatory COVID-19 Testing. Uh, Dr. Robert J. Shapiro is our guest. Dr. Shapiro, thank you for holding and welcome back. Um, Before the break, we were talking about the best outcome uh, to be a development of a vaccine, but we do know uh, that medical professional scientists are saying we are 12 to 18 months out from that uh, because that's how long it takes to develop vaccines and there are testing and trials and research that needs to be done uh, before it could be approved by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And you talk about in that interim, in the meantime, how the federal government um, has to work with the tools at its disposal and should enact a program of universal mandatory testing uh, once this outbreak has receded. Uh, we talked about people that are uninfected um, or immune if they've been infected, uh, being able to recover and having a certificate, uh, speaking to something the vice president, uh, not vice president, excuse me, uh, Dr. Fauci spoke about earlier uh, today. Um, there, uh, You speak in your piece about few legal experts Uh, may question the government's authority to make testing uh, mandatory. And you talk about the government clearly has the powers uh, to promote safety on a mandatory basis from legally enforceable clean air standards and child labor laws uh, to the requirements uh, to use safety belts. So then you break it down as we were talking about before the break. And you say all Americans will fall into one of three groups. Group one, the millions of people who have contracted the coronavirus and recovered. Of course, scientists are not yet fully certain that those people will develop immunity. There is some basis for optimism. Um, And uh, let's take that. Yesterday, there are people that were admitted to hospitals in New York who had had the virus, tested positive, got better, tested negative, and are now back in the hospital and are reinfected and have become infected again. Um, So that's what I was going to ask you because because science isn't certain about people developing immunity— doesn't that, in a sense, still increase uh, the risk um, that somebody, uh, even if they have tested positive, couldn't contract it again and uh, tested negative and couldn't contract it again and be positive once they're out in the uh, general population? Absolutely. Look, if, if in fact getting this virus does not confer immunity, um, then this catastrophe becomes even worse. And that means that certainly we cannot contemplate returning to anything like normal life until at a minimum there are effective treatments. Um, the, uh, The vaccine may be further off, but we may be closer to effective treatments. We don't have them yet, but we could be closer. And the reason I'm optimistic about that is this is a global pandemic. And that means that the market for treatments is worldwide. And that tells you that every large pharma company in the world and thousands of startups and university labs are all focusing on treatments or vaccines for COVID-19. We've never seen this before globally, and that makes me optimistic that we will get effective treatments uh, in 
whether it's two months or six months or eight months, I can't I We obviously don't know, but, but we will get effective treatments. If there is no immunity from this, uh, then, um, then we are stuck where we are until, um, um, uh, until there are effective treatments or a vaccine. There will be no safe way to return to normal life without both uh, without either immunity or uh, effective treatments. Uh, no, a- absolutely. The CDC said that people um, affected with a-, a similar virus, which was actually a coronavirus, both SARS and MERS uh, were coronaviruses, um, yes. were highly unlikely to be infected after recovering. Uh, other yes. researchers report that COVID-19 and the virus uh, does not mutate easily, thank God, a prerequisite right. for the antibody response that would make people uh, immune uh, to uh, reinfection. Um, but there is less evidence you write about in your article about whether those who have recovered are unable to infect others. And that's interesting. In other words, they could be silent carriers, right, with an asymptomatic, an asymptomatic carriers. But you also that's correct. You also speak in your article and you say, but we can derive a reasonable answer from undertaking a round of mass tracking here in the United right. States, in China, Italy, Spain, and many other countries. Uh, they need to start collectively tracking recovered coronavirus patients to see how many, if any, showed up reinfected or have infected others. Absolutely. Correct. I agree 100 percent. Why do you think this is not being done? Is it because everybody's just inundated dealing with the virus and the people who are sick? And, and not thinking long-term and long-range about the people who have recovered and how that will play into our future, especially if somebody's an asymptomatic or silent carrier. Yes, I think, that's, I think that's part of it. But I think there's another part of it, and that is we, and particularly in the United States, but not only in the United States, we saw the, we've seen this in Sweden and we've seen this in Britain, um, there's enormous denial about what's happening. We had a president of the United States in total denial uh, about the danger of this pandemic. He was, the CIA warned him about this January 3rd, said this is a large problem and it's going to come here. Um, Peter Navarro finally got a White House advisor, usually on trade, who's usually wrong. He finally got something right. He told the president. He sent memos to the president in mid-January saying this could kill hundreds of thousands of Americans. Um, The president got more warnings from Health Secretary Azar. um, And people were contracting it and dying. And he remained in denial. Um, So part of this is that um, uh, we are living with probably the greatest failure of leadership uh, from the White House that we have seen in since pr- before the Civil War, literally. Um, it's costing thousands of lives. It will, it is going to destroy between 25 and 35 million jobs. Um, and look, the Trump administration uh, was also alerted during the transition to this yep. threat. Do- Dr. Shapiro, I, I, Dr. Shapiro, I am so fascinated <laughs> talking to you all the time that we are out of time once again, but we will have you back, as you know. Dr. Robert <laughs> okay. Shapiro, 
uh, president chairman of Sonicon. Check them out. The website is sonicon.com. That's capital S-O-N-E-C-O-N.com. Follow him on Twitter at Rob Shapiro, capital R-O-B, capital S-H, capital S. H-A-C-I-R-F. I'm Leslie Marshall, and I'm so glad to be able to have you see me and hear me. It's a challenging time in Michigan, but we will rise to the challenge. We all need to do our best. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying coronavirus. So stay home, wash your hands often, limit trips to the store, and if you must go out, stay six feet from others and wear a mask. Stay home and stay safe. Learn more at michigan.gov slash coronavirus. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.